This story starts about a year ago. Last summer I was out for a walk. The pubs had just reopened after three months, so it was that kind of walk. But this story begins on my way home. I left the park and immediately across from the exit was a house with boxes and boxes and boxes outside, with big writing in Sharpie that said, please take. The boxes were filled with glasses, lamps, pots, ceramics, and importantly, cookbooks. I took more than my fair share. Sainsbury's books published in the 80s on casseroles, burgundy, Tuscany and fish. A book with modernised ancient Roman recipes, just to name a few. And I sat on this mystery person's collection of books for a while, wanting to know more, not sure what to do with it or how to share it. So this podcast is about stealing, with permission, other people's recipes. I'm Will Stewart, and you're listening to A Cook's Library. I want to ask people to go through their piles, stacks, boxes, whatever, however big or small, and tell me about a favourite cookbook. This episode, I'm speaking to Alex Jackson, my boss. Alex is a chef, a writer, and has his own cookbook, named after his acclaimed restaurant, Sardine, Simple Seasonal Provencal Cooking. We work together at Noble Rot Soho in London. Alex is head chef. There's lots of people I want to speak to, but Alex introduced me to some of my favourite books, so he was the obvious first choice. We talk a little bit about Provencal food, and also the first cookbook Alex was given. How are you? How's lockdown? Uh, quite bored. Yeah, I'm bored as well. I'm doing um, quite a lot of cooking. Oh yeah, it's a podcast. Yeah. Hence trying to be creative. Anyway, have you? did you decide on books, or are you still... Well, you'd hope so at this stage, wouldn't you? Yeah. Um, yeah, I think I want to talk about this uh, Nigel Slater book. I tend to talk about, when people ask me about cookbooks and stuff, I talk about the same ones all the time. Right, but I thought it'd be quite interesting one to talk about because it was one of the first books that I got. I got it when I was eighteen, and at the time I was sort of, you know, I never cooked professionally. Obviously, I was just, you know, getting into cooking at home, and then I was just off to uni where I'd have to like cook for myself all the time. So yeah, I got this book and ended up sort of cooking from it quite a bit, reading it a lot. I mean, I, like I read it a lot more than I cooked from it, which is true of almost every book I have. And I just sort of picked it up the other day before we talked. And it was quite dog-eared and I was sort of coming through it. And I was like, oh man, this reminds me of like being in uni halls and sort of working out how to cook. How were your halls? Uh, quite weird. It was called Goldsmith House. Right. Uh, it was opposite Selfridges. Uh, it cost £70 a week. Jeez. Like UCL halls. I mean, this is quite a long time ago, obviously. And it's been knocked down now. Uh, and the halls were like quite crap. They've obviously been there a really long time. And I imagine the kitchen was really shit. Little little kitchen, but like not really, like people didn't use it. People just heated up ready mm. And I was the only person in there, like, not the only person, but one of the only people doing any actual cooking. And everyone was like, oh, you're in there again, you're cooking again. I don't know much about the book. It's called Fast Food, isn't it? It's called Real Fast Food. Let's see. 1992. Before I was born. <laughs> was it? Fucking hell. He's joking. Like, quite a, quite a while before I was born. Oh, wow. Well, I got it in 2003, anyway. How old were you then? Uh, five. <laughs> five. Okay, well, there you go. Um, I've been cooking since you are in nappies, mate. No, I was six, actually. I was six. All right, fair enough. Which probably, doesn't make much of a difference. Probably we're in nappies at six. And um, I ended up having quite a lot of Nigel Slater books. Because you do, don't you? Because it's great. Mm. What's interesting for me is to think about how I started cooking and you know what I read when I started cooking. Because nowadays I sort of wax lyrical about some really obscure cookbook and it all gets a bit academic. But like when I was younger, I'd watch Jamie Oliver on the telly and be like, wow, this is great. How exciting. 
but for me it was just like I was just at the age where I was starting to think about cooking for myself and I'd done bits and pieces with my mum and then suddenly you see this guy on the telly and it's like you know it's all cool and stuff and he's got his own flat and then like whizzes around on a Vespa but more than anything it's just so easy Nigel Slater you know Jamie Oliver was sort of exciting and a bit simpler but Nigel Slater felt a bit more a bit more real it felt like I was sort of reading him and I was sort of getting into this world that I hadn't had no experience of at that point like actual serious food and it was like he was initiating me on in this world of things to eat that I didn't know about and ways to make it which you know after reading it seemed really simple and sort of a few of the pages are a bit splattered and most of them aren't and there's a few things I used to cook all the time like roast portobello mushrooms on toast whole portobello mushrooms and make some garlic butter with parsley in it put it in the mushroom and bake it in the oven then you have that on toast yeah delicious it's delicious if you've never cooked before, you don't know how to make mushrooms on toast. Like, you you know, you've probably made it in a pan, but the thing there was like, you know, it's a whole mushroom and it's like, wow, it looks like a lot of butter. Like, that's mental. And then, um, you know, he kind of holds your hands through these sort of little baby steps of cooking. The amazing thing about the book that I thought at the time was that he goes, look, this is how to make scrambled eggs. And you go, wicked, love scrambled eggs. Now I know how to make them properly because Nigel taught me. But then after it, he's got a list of, he's like, it says good things to stir into scrambled eggs. And you read this list and you're like, wow, you know, those all sound delicious. And then suddenly you know how to make 20 things. And when you're a very young cook or inexperienced, you don't know that like smoked salmon's delicious and scrambled eggs because you might not have had that. You don't know that like chives and pepper are really good in it. And some of the other sort of a bit more outre combinations, you kind of think, well, my mum never cooked that. You know, I've never had that before. Reading it back now, it's sort of obvious, all these things that sort of, obviously one thing goes with another but at the time I didn't know and really looking back at it it's just like that's what helped me build this sort of bank of knowledge about what's good with what. Like before I started in the kitchen I didn't really cook at home much but I was cooking every day at work and then lockdown hits and you sort of have to learn to cook for yourself and that first lockdown was like probably the first time I properly learned how to cook when you're at home because it's so much different to cooking at a restaurant. Mm. It's it's fun to think of things you want to cook, but you're not going to buy really expensive ingredients because you have to budget because we're not earning as much as we were when we were working. I think there's a big part of food media now that is trying to balance how to like properly teach people to cook from home and be resourceful and be frugal and not spend loads of money where you don't have to. And it's really hard to try and find the right way to do that. Because of course you want to just like make constant pies and get fucking lobster, but obviously you just can't. Yeah, it's a bit, it's a bit silly. I mean, you know, I don't do that. You know, I've got a family now. And, you know, I'm cooking for my wife and for my daughter. And they're both who's, who's, yeah. Yeah, both of them are. And I'm not, obviously. You know, and so I, I don't mind it at all. You know, like at home I eat vegan food. And then when I'm at work I eat tasty, delicious meats and loads of butter. And, like, go off to the fridge and steal the cheese while everyone else is working. <coughs> Hello, cat. you got to go. <sighs> Just to be clear, he is not a guest on this podcast. Do you have, like, a first food memory? Or like a, maybe not a first one, but a one that is like a big one in your life that you think about. Um, I, I remember like eating, and my mum was a really good cook. Um, and my grandma is actually a head chef in a hotel in Mid Wales. But you know, that's not, it was like breakfast for 300, do you know what I mean? It's like, and she, um, she used to cook like chips. That's what I remember. And she cooked egg and chips. Once she cooked me steak and egg and chips, but she cooked the steak, it was a frozen steak, and she cooked it in a George Foreman grill. And she was like, lovely bit of kid, that. 
<laughs> I just put it in the George Foreman grill. Comes out lovely. And it was frozen in the middle. Bless her. Um, but yeah, egg and chips at Grandma's house. Just absolutely amazing. Like, double fried. Not triple, none of that rubbish. But double fried. And I don't know, she always had like, she knew what the right potato was. So it wasn't, it wasn't too much starch or sugar. And it wasn't, you know, the, the chips were great. But you know, it's Grandma's chips, isn't it? Of course I'm going to like them. And then my other grandma, who was not a very good cook, used to make this like, a, like meat casserole thing. And I don't know if it's beef <laughs> or pork, but it had apricots in it. Oh my god! I used to absolutely hate it. We used to wheel it out, and she had all the like the service trolley with all these like doilies on it. This like really weird old orange pot that you should cook this bloody thing in. It. Jeez, disgusting. So what was the second book? There was a a French book. Yeah, I mean one of my favourite books that I don't really read that much anymore just because I've overdone it a bit is uh, Lulu's Provencal Table. So it's a book by Richard Olney, who's an American food writer, about a woman called Lulu Peyroux, who um, is a woman who runs uh, Domaine Tompier, which is a winery near Bondol in Provence. And her husband makes the wine and she would run the household and she was sort of the matriarch of the family but anyway sort of the book's quite unique in that it's about a home cook albeit a sort of amazing one sort of quite atypical and Richard only goes sort of shadows her when she's cooking you know the reason why I like the book I mean I thought about it a lot I mean the food's just amazing you know it sort of gives you confidence as a as not necessarily a home cook but a sort of homely cook that you can make these things which are not necessarily showing off or particularly particularly technical but are just incredibly delicious because they just are and i guess it's what people want to eat yeah people want to eat it i mean you would never you wouldn't push it away would you um if she you know if she invited you around for dinner you definitely go and i think you'd probably enjoy it all uh you can't now because she's dead um all right, rest in peace. <laughs> rest in peace, Lily. I met her once. Yeah, how was that? Uh, yeah, it was great. We, I was like doing a bit of a research trip and we were like, let's go, let's go to Domaine Tompier and we'll meet Lulu. It's a bit of a pipe dream, obviously. She doesn't really invite <laughs> like nobody's <laughs> into her house. Anyway, we went there, me and my mate, and uh, they were like, oh yeah, sorry, it's closed. And we were like, oh, well, can we like still look around? Can you know, like, see the vines at least. I mean, not expecting an invitation to the kitchen. I was trying to wangle that. But they were like, no, it's closed, sorry. Uh, you can buy a bottle of wine to take away if you want. So we were like, oh fuck, okay. <laughs> we did that, we bought some rosé, which is delicious. Um, and as we were walking out, we sort of saw through the window this little figure like hunched over with a Zimmer frame. I was like, fuck, it's Lulu, it's Lulu. And she was out for a like daily walk down the drive. Oh, I'm gonna go say hello. So I went and said hello, and she was like, absolutely lovely, and like big bright eyes, just like in the photos from the book, and like tiny. I think she was like 96 then, and she was just absolutely lovely. And she was like, "Oh, best of luck with the restaurant you got open. You know, like next time you come back, I'll cook for you." And obviously, I never went back, and she never did. But the um, yeah, the food in that book's just amazing. And I, I cooked a lot of it. Like I cooked a lot of it for the restaurant. You know, when I cook a recipe from that and like just put it on the menu as is, basically cook it exactly the same way as as described, and everybody loves it, it's really reassuring 
because you're like, man, I just made a, you know, like, I just made Swiss chard gratin. You don't even make a bechamel separately. You just chuck loads of flour in like you would in your house because you can't be bothered. And it's just delicious. And you grill some lamb and you make a gratin with Swiss chard and anchovies. And it's like one of the most delicious things you can eat. For me, that's really satisfying as a cook to cook stuff out of a book, which is really like a home cook's recipes. I mean, amazing ones. And then to just put that in a restaurant setting, that was uh, really satisfying. I mean, France is so different now. Nouvelle cuisine is everywhere. You can't escape it. It's impossible not to find three little dots, puree. Yeah, even in like the simplest place, someone's trying to put a little twist on it and show off a bit of technique, you know, which is like a really obviously chefy thing that doesn't just happen in France. I mean, France is very guilty of it, I think, if you go like way more than Italy or Spain, where you can find like pretty rough and ready, very traditional, very plain kind of places. But in France, I don't know, it's, it's really hard. And uh, I sort of, I did this talk once with Diana Henry and Felicity Cloak about French food. And this guy asked a question at the end, he was like, why is it when you drive around France, you, can, you can't find these places, but in Italy you can. And we were kind of stumped. I th- you know, the only thing I could think of was like French food is, um, it's so sort of famous and so codified and so, you know, so well respected. Really sort of, it's been around for so long in a sort of very specific format. And it was elevated to sort of, sort of high form of civilization in France. It's right at the top of their important things and cultures, la cuisine française. And um, that doesn't really just mean good, honest cooking. It means all the bells and whistles and all the everything else that you get with it, and like amazing, complex, like mystifying sauces, and like the sort of the finest of the fine restaurants. And when you say the words French food, that it conjures up that. And the, the kind of French food that I'm interested in, it's like obviously I, I am interested in all the like delicious fine dining pits and like a bit more old fashioned and classic cuisine. But. Um, the French food that I really want to eat is the like really simple home cooking, which I think is just as good as anything you get anywhere. Alex's restaurant Sardine closed its doors for good at the beginning of the pandemic. Now you can eat his food at Noble Rot, where once lived the Soho institution, the Gay Hussar. Inside you will find goulash and wine. Subscribe and give me a follow on Instagram at a cook's library to stay up to date with releases. Thanks for listening. Keep cooking and keep eating.